Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. That said, open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation. We're continuing our Things to Come series this morning, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. Stand with me once you are there. Revelation chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 20 today. Verses 9 through 20. John writing, says in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, uh, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From the mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for uh, my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars, are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to come and by your spirit, speak into our hearts. Here we have the glorified Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would catch a glimpse of who he is in this passage this morning as he sits at your right hand even presently. God, change and transform our lives. You know the work that is necessary this morning, and so we just surrender ourselves to you. We open ourselves up to your Holy Spirit, and we ask, Lord, that you would speak into our lives. Let us not Leave here the same people, God. Help those who we encounter after we leave this place to know that we've been with Jesus. That is our prayer, Father. We thank you that you are faithful to complete the work that you started in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few years back, I was running at Kedron Park. And uh, a lot of times when I run, I like to block out what I'm doing because I'm <laughs> running. I mean, who likes to think about themselves running? So I'm thinking about the Lord, and I'm running, and I'm just, uh, just thinking about a passage that I was reading, and I'm, and I'm meditating on that passage, and I'm chewing on that passage, and the, and the Lord starts to speak to me. He starts to tell me, you know, Tim, this is, he's giving me these illustrations and different ideas of explaining this passage. The Holy Spirit is just, it's like he's running alongside of me, talking to me. It's so real, and it's so powerful. And I think to myself in that moment, I should stop right now and write this stuff down. Like what I'm being told because it's so impactful. So 
rather than doing that, I said, self, self, you'll remember this, right? So don't worry about writing it down because this is so impactful that there's no way that you'll ever forget about what the Lord is saying to you. 30 minutes later, when I'm finished, I am trying to remember actually anything that he said to me in that moment because I'm now, I can't remember anything. I'm thinking like, oh man, I wish I would have written it down. I wish I would have taken time to write it down. Anybody ever had those moments with the Lord where he's speaking so impactfully to you, you think like there's no way for me to not remember this and yet... Just a short time later, you're like, what was he saying to me again? Ask yourself today at 1 o'clock, what were they talking about in church today again? Remember that? Hey, what would you learn in church today? Uh, you ask your kids that. How about your kids ask you that? See how that goes. (laughs) Amen. All right. The reality of it is, is that, you know, we, we don't have as great a memories as we think we do. Some people do, but most of us struggle with, it, with remembering even impactful things. As you get old, that, that goes away. Today, I'm getting so old, folks, that today I was looking in the mirror in my bathroom. I just kind of was walking by and, and it caught a glimpse of myself in the mirror. And I thought, why do I have my ear pod in? And I'm thinking, like, where did I even get my ear pod? And I looked and it was just my beard right here. It's white. <laughs> it's white. So that's telling you how old I'm getting, but as I I realize, like, my brain can't remember the things that the Lord speaks to me about, so I need to write it down. That's where we find John here, in this passage where, where the Lord tells him, not just once, folks, but twice, write it down. That is the title of our message this morning. We find in verse 11, the Lord saying to John, write what you see in a book. John is to record everything that he's seeing. Not only that, but then Jesus tells him in verse 19, write therefore the things that you've seen, those that are and those that will take place after this. Twice the Lord tells John, write it down. Write it down. We see that verse 19 will become the actual outline for the entire book of Revelation. Uh, And it's so clear uh, the way that the, the Lord has given that to us right up front so that we understand the way the book is to be broken down. But the Lord tells John, write it down, because, you know, it's not just for John. Remember Jesus said, write it down and send it to the seven churches. It's for those seven churches, but it's not just for those seven churches. It's also for you and I. John was writing scripture here. He needed to write it down because it was needing to be passed on. And I wonder that if there aren't some words from the Lord that perhaps come through your brain that need to be written down for somebody later, the Lord's speaking to you about something, some situation, and you're thinking like, man, I know the Lord spoke to me about that not too long ago. I can't remember what he said. Write it down. Write it down. The Lord speaks to us, yes, because he wants us to grow, but understand you are a vessel for him. You're a tool in his hand, as my buddy Martin, Marty says, you know. I'm, I just want to be a good tool in his hand, you know. And, and you're a tool in his hand. Write it down. It's not necessarily just for you. The things that we learn from the Lord, 2 Corinthians 1 tells us we're comforted with the comfort that we can pass on to other people. Sometimes we forget the comfort that we've received. Write it down. 
give it out, give it back out to other people. John is to write this down and distribute it because this will become an encouragement to not just these literal seven churches in Asia Minor, but this will become an encouragement for the entire church that will move forward from 90 so AD. That means you and I. This is to us as well. There's five things that John uh, is, that we learn in our passage today about John writing down what he's seeing. First, we consider the place where he is writing in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the king, kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, how many of you guys have found that the Lord speaks to you in the most unlikely of places? You know, you're not expecting a couple of you, like, are listening at times and the Lord speaks to you. But, um, you know, some, I, I find all the time the Lord speaks to me in such bizarre places, such weird places, places that I don't anticipate, like the shower. Here I am taking a shower, and I'm like, the Lord starts to speak, and I'm like, Lord, I'm taking a shower, man. Come on. <laughs> but the reality is that it's in the shower, to be honest with you, where I hear so clearly from the Lord. It's like, it's the quiet place for me. It's where I, I'm just not, I don't have anything going on. I'm just think, I'm just, just allowing the spirit to speak to me. And all of a sudden I have all these clear thoughts about uh, the things that the, are going on in my life and hearing from the Lord and all that kind of stuff. It's oftentimes in the quiet place. It's not necessarily, you know, um, the specific location, but it's, but it's the, the environment that you've created. It's in the quiet place that, you can hear from the Lord. You have an ear to hear. And so it's oftentimes in the quiet. You know, we find Moses. It was in the quiet place that the Lord spoke to him in the burning bush. So he's walking through this wilderness, nobody around, and he's thinking like, Lord, what am I doing here? Just pondering his life probably. Like, how did I get here? And the Lord begins to speak to him. Why? Because he's open, he's hearing, he's listening. But, but it's, you know, it was Abraham who was sitting at his home in Uruk, the Chaldeans, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, not even knowing who the Lord is, not having an idea at all about who God is, and the Lord speaks so clearly to him. Why? Because he was available, because he had an ear to hear. And I think oftentimes, if you, you find if you take time to get in the quiet place, it's when you hear clearly what the Lord is speaking to you about. But it's not just in the quiet place. It's also in deep times of tribulation and trial that the Lord speaks so clearly. Why? Because you're desperate to hear from him. Because there's a level of desperation that you want to hear from him. It was Ezekiel who wrote his prophetic words in his book in the Old Testament when he was not in a great place, but he was in exile in Babylon, and the Lord began to speak to him as he sought the Lord. Began to say, Lord, why don't you speak to my heart? It was Paul who wrote you know, the prison epistles while he was in prison, Colossians, Philemon, Ephesians, Philippians. God speaks to us in the good times and the bad times, doesn't he? Well, John is in good company here because, uh, you know, he is in a, a place of trial, a difficult moment in his life. This perhaps is maybe the most difficult moment that John has ever faced in his life. He's exiled on this island of Patmos, which was a prison without walls, some six miles wide, 10 miles long, 40 miles off the coast of Miletus. It was a rock quarry. 
where people were sent to work and die. And it was in this barren, lonely, desolate place that the Lord speaks to this man in his 90s. John, writing here, says, I am a brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Understand, John was sent to Patmos as a criminal because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was being persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ, for sharing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, namely his death and his resurrection. The church at large at this time is facing heavy persecution by the hand of satanically influenced Emperor Domitian. Listen, this wasn't new. The persecution to the church, it started the moment the church began. In fact, Jesus himself was persecuted. He, he died for his faith and, and died for our faith. He came to die for a message that he was wanting us to carry on and to spread to people. And you might also pay with your life to distribute that message. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The church has always faced persecution. Stephen, being the first martyr in the Christian faith, probably by the hand of Saul, who would become Paul, the apostle. Stephen died for his faith in Christ at the hand of the Jews. But then that cascaded into, you know, uh, here we find uh, John's brother, James the Great, the first apostle to die a martyr. He died in 44 AD. Stephen died around 34 AD. Ten years later, uh, John's brother, James, ends up dying by the hand of King Agrippa in Jerusalem. Fast forward another you know, say 20 years or 22 years, Nero kills the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul. And now it's by the hand of Domitian that the church is being persecuted. He's already tried to kill John. We know by church historians that John was boiled in oil and he left the cauldron unscathed. Unscathed, that's a miracle, folks. He, and he was... So just the same thing as Polycarp, as they try to burn him, and he, he, he won't burn. That's the Lord. The Lord's doing a work through that process. Well, because John wouldn't die, so then Domitian just exiled him to, to Patmos, where he would hopefully die there. Domitian had a major issue against Christians because they wouldn't bow down to him as God. He was one of, um, one of the, the, the most emphatic, you know, emperors in Rome at the, that would require people to bow down to him as God. And if they didn't, it was a crime. And so that's why he's really coming against the church. John is preaching against false idols and, you know, only bowing to the name of Jesus and these kinds of things. And so no wonder John is a target of Domitian. So Domitian also targeted his own, his own niece, who is, uh, you know, the daughter of Flavus Clement, a consul to Rome, and, and she also was exiled to the island of Patmos for her faith. What I'm trying to say to you is, is this isn't new, folks. 
why does it surprise Americans that persecution comes to the church? Why is that surprising? It shouldn't surprise us. In fact, we should be blessed that it hasn't come yet, that we've been blessed to experience the things that we have, the freedoms that we have and such. But, but understand, God is still on the throne when persecution comes to America. God is still doing a great work, and he's at work. And in fact, what we find is God does his greatest work when the church is being persecuted. It's the blood of the martyrs that's the seed of the church. Why? Because who would die for a lie? Who would die for a lie, folks? Your testimony becomes the loudest when you're the most persecuted. When things are going great in your life and you're telling people about Jesus, they're like, yeah, yeah. Your circumstances have positioned you to be at a place of peace and comfort, yeah? But yet when you're going through it and you still have that peace and comfort, people are going, what's the matter with you? How can you, why are you, why are you able to, to sustain yourself through this situation? How are you able to do this? And you tell them, it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. It's the Lord. Only he does these things. The church is being heavily persecuted here. And you know what? The church may continue. The church will always be persecuted. It always has been and always will be. Don't let that catch you off guard. You just stay the course. Continue to do what you're called to do. Because we're in good hands. You believe that? Anybody got Allstate? Well, guess what? I got Jesus Christ. I'm in better hands than you are, right? John is writing, listen, this marvelous revelation of Jesus Christ, not from an ivory tower, but from a rock island where he's expected to die in his 90s. In his 90s, folks. He's writing from what would possibly be called the gates of hell as he's being persecuted for his faith in Christ. And so he can identify with every person in the church. He can identify with everybody that's existing in the, in the church as he is writing this, he can, he can identify with all of them because they're also being persecuted as well. He can also, uh, you know, identify with the majority of the people that live in the 1040 window that are Christians that are experiencing heavy persecution. And he can also identify with you and I. So he is saying, I'm a brother. I'm a brother in the tribulation. I'm a brother in uh, and a partner in the tribulation, but I'm also a brother and a partner in the kingdom of God. What John is telling us here is that we have a call on our life to continue to preach the kingdom of God until Jesus, till we go home to be with the Lord or he comes and gets us. We have a call. John's a partner to that call and he's gonna stay the course and he's gonna preach the kingdom with patient endurance. How do we do it? How do we do this when, it, when times get tough? Patient endurance. Patient endurance. We, we hold on to the Lord and we stay the course in our lives. We keep, we keep the faith. We continue to press into the Lord. We continue to share our faith as the Lord opens up opportunities for us. We preach the kingdom with patient endurance. And that's what, that's what John is telling his, his listeners here as he's writing this down. He's telling us how to get through persecution, how to deal with these things, how to stay the course. Perhaps you feel like you're on the island of Patmos this morning. You're lonely. You're isolated in a place of difficult circumstances. Well, listen, it's perhaps in this moment that you'll hear the clearest from the Lord, perhaps the most profound things from the Lord, but you've got to give him your ear. 
You can't be mad about your situation. You have to press into God. You can't blame him for what's going on in your life because these are satanic influences in this world, folks. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not your, your, you know, your neighbor or your coworker or the person at the gas station that your problem is with. It's in the spiritual realm. It's principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. Understand where this is coming from. And so what does John say? Patiently endure. Why? Because we have a Lord that is king over the spiritual. We have a Lord that is, that by his name, we can cast demons out. By his name, we can proclaim victory. So what do we do? We stay the course. We preach the kingdom with patient endurance. John is now going to show us the people that he's writing to in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice with a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When it says here that John was in the spirit, many take that to mean that he was literally out of his body. Perhaps his body is in Patmos in the physical realm, and his spirit is in the spiritual realm somewhere else. And in fact, many would then interpret that phrase, the day of the Lord, to mean the tribulation period, that John is literally there. Remember, God is out outside of time and space. God can insert you wherever he wants to. He knows the end from the beginning. Nothing will catch him off guard. It's so strange for us to think like that because God knows when the tribulation will happen. He knows everything that will happen in the tribulation. He knows every response of every human being in that situation as well. So perhaps John is out of his body inserted in the timeline of the prophetic there at the day of the Lord. It's just a term that's used in the Old Testament that means, you know, the, the period of time in which the Lord will reveal himself through his wrath, through judgment. That's what it means. And that's why you see over and over again in the Old Testament, it says, you know, it's a fearful thing to come to the day of the Lord. You don't want to be in the day of the Lord because it's where in the day of the Lord is when the judgment comes. There are others who believe that John is just having a vision. He's in his physical being and he's just sort of like God cracks open the spiritual and he's just seeing things and perhaps that's the case. They would also interpret the day of the Lord being Simply, Sunday, the day Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Although there's no reference to that being the day of the Lord, we call it the day of the Lord because it's the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that's fine. But scripturally speaking, that phrase, the day of the Lord, is an Old Testament reference that is referring to end times events. It's referring to that period of time during the, the tribulation. Guess what? You get to make up your own mind about that. What do I believe it is? It's the day of the Lord. That's what I believe. That's what it says here. <laughs> so, so John goes on here, and listen, out of nowhere, says he hears a loud voice like a trumpet. Have you ever sat next to a trumpet section or like a brass section of a band, and you're not knowing that they're going to play, and all of a sudden they're like, and you're like, whoa. Could you imagine how... John, not, in, not anticipating this at all, all of a sudden hears a voice that's like a trumpet. It's like one. It isn't a trumpet, but it's like one. It's loud. It catches him off guard, startles him. He's thinking, whoa, 
That's crazy. He wasn't expecting it. That would scare the daylights out of you, wouldn't it? And the voice says to John, very clearly, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. This is the first of 12 commands that John receives in the book of Revelation. John is commanded to write down what he sees. Again, he's not just hearing this stuff. You know how we say, oh, the Lord really spoke to me. I'm assuming most of you are saying not audibly, not that that couldn't happen. God can do anything. But here's what, what most of us mean. You know, when we say the Lord spoke to me, what we're saying is there was some communication in my brain that God and I are connecting on the wavelengths and we're, I'm understanding what he's saying to me. There's an impression in my life that a very strong impression that I need to do something or I need to go somewhere or I need to say something to somebody, right? That's what we mean by that when we say that the Lord was speaking to me. John is seeing these things, folks. He's literally, everything that he will write down is something that he's observing with his own eyes. And that's why he uses words like the word like. He's trying to explain to us, still fully inspired by the Holy Spirit, but again, the Holy Spirit utilizing the man, and his characteristics, the way that he speaks, and all of those sorts of things to write down the word of God. Still inerrant because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But he utilizes the personality of John here. And John is saying, man, it was like a trumpet. That voice, it was just like, boom, out of nowhere. And it grabbed a hold of my attention. And then he told me to, to write everything down that I'm going to see. And again... The purpose being because these churches, uh, it's not just about these seven churches, but it's about also the church in general at large. You can see the map up here, but there are, you know, these seven churches are situated in such a place that you can kind of make a, you know, it's just a great place to distribute information on major intersections of roadways in Asia Minor. And so this information would be, passed out and it would be carried all over the world through these seven churches. As I said last week, I believe that these seven churches, you know, are meant to represent every type of believer that will exist in the church. There's different interpretations on that. That's just mine. That's kind of how I see it. But, you know, some people believe that, that they represent church history or whatnot. I believe that the, these are speaking to about types of believers in the church. And Jesus has something to say to us about it. That's why it's relevant to us. He's not just writing to first century churches, but he's writing to you and I today. And he wants to say something to us. And we're going to get into that next week as we start the letter to the church of Ephesus where the Lord begins to speak to the churches and tells them, hey, there's some great things you're doing, but also here's some things that I have against you. And notice, we'll see the phrase, I'll take the lampstand from your church if you don't deal with these things. Jesus is serious about his church and about his church being a representative of him. So John here shows us where he was writing this letter and to whom he is writing to. Now he shares with us the person from whom the command comes. Look at verse 12. Then I turned and see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like uh, 
burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a, a sharp two-edged sword, and, from, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. After hearing this trumpet-like voice, John turns to see who it is that's speaking, and he notices seven golden lampstands. His, his, his attention is drawn immediately into the, this picture of seven individual lampstands. This is not the menorah, which is the Jewish candle, um, you know, lampstand that is sort of one stem with, with, with seven branches that come out of it, bowls on top where they would put the oil and they would light up uh, the, uh, the, the temple there. It's not that. Seven individual lampstands that Jesus is walking in the midst of. What a picture we have here. What is the purpose of a lampstand? Just like the menorah, these lampstands have the same purpose, and that is to bring light to dark places. And here we have seven churches that are represented as lampstands. We know that because Jesus gives us the interpretation in verse 20. We don't have to figure these out. We let Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture says that the lampstands are the church. So he's got seven different churches that are seven individual lampstands, and what are these lampstands supposed to be doing? Bringing light. What did Jesus say? I am the light of the world. And then he says, you're the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5, he says, so let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. You're a lampstand. You have a function the light doesn't come from the lampstand. The light comes from the oil that's put in the lampstand. The lampstand is the instrument used to bring, to, to carry the oil so that the oil can bring light. What is that a picture of? If you look in the Old Testament, oil is always a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that is in the lampstand that is used for the Lord to shine the light of Jesus into the world. He didn't leave you, uh, you know, empty. He filled you with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because that's how light will come out of you in the world. The idea that we have a little Jesus in our heart is not the right idea, folks. If you've ever seen that, that movie, Eddie Murphy, where he's the big person and on, on the, he's a little person inside of him and he's like controlling the bigger person, that's not the way it works. I know I just disappointed some of you guys. You're like, oh man, I thought, that w thought Jesus was in my heart. Well, he's really not. I hate to say it, but the Holy Spirit is inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is the same spirit that, that did all of the things that Jesus did were through empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he put that spirit in us. Those who have been made right by God, you, you became a, a clean vessel that can be filled with the Holy Spirit when you came to Christ. And it's through the Holy Spirit that that. Christ is emulated through us, that the world can see that light through us. We're simple lampstands, folks. We need the oil. The oil has to, has to allow the blaze to happen. Everything we do has to be inspired by the Holy Spirit or it's not the right light. God's not looking for fake light. He's not looking for flashlights. He's looking for oil that will burn, that will emulate the light that that speaks of Jesus Christ. That's what he wants out of you. Do not try and do this on your own, folks. You will fail. And the light that you emulate will not be the right light. It will be fake light. These are fake lights. And yeah, you can see, but 
It's not the right kind of light. And in fact, some, some would say this is harmful for you. Right? Trying to walk in fake light is harmful for you. Let the Holy Spirit reign in your life. That's what he is saying. And, and so, so John sees Jesus walking in the midst of these lamps. And now he starts to describe Jesus here. And uh, this is just amazing. He, he first calls Jesus the Son of Man, which is a title for Jesus according to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He's, Daniel writing says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, who is the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this sounds like a humble title, right? Like son of man, like, oh, the humanity of Christ. That's what it's really, no, this is speaking about God who became a man. That's what this, this title means. It literally means Messiah. That's what this title, that's who, John, that's who uh, Daniel is speaking of in Daniel chapter 7. He's speaking about the Messiah. This is a glorious title for Jesus, the Son of Man, a title that he used often of himself. Why? Pointing the people who should know the scriptures back to Daniel chapter 7 saying, I'm that guy. I'm that guy. And they miss it. He's the Son of Man. And John totally understands who he is here. He sees the Son of Man in the same light as sort of Daniel does. And John goes on to list eight different characteristics about Jesus in his glorified state here. The first thing he mentions to us here is that he sees Jesus clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. This long robe is indicative of somebody who is royalty and speaks of power and authority. The golden sash around his chest is a reference to his high priestlyhood. And it's found in Exodus chapter 28 in the high priestly garments there. It totally makes sense that Jesus is presented here in a long robe speaking about his royalty. He's the king of kings. We know that from verse 5 of Revelation 1. He's also our great high priest. As indicated by Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, Jesus Christ is ruling and making intercession for us at the same time. What a savior we have in him. John goes on to describe the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, this picture is like Daniel's depiction of the father in Daniel chapter 7, just a few uh, verses before uh, we just read. And, and sh in verse 9, it says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days, this is describing God the father, took his seat. His clothing was white as wool, and, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. John sees Jesus in the same way that Daniel saw the Father. How can that be possible? Because they're one. Because they're cut from the same cloth. That's what Hebrews chapter 1, 3 says. Regarding Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus and the Father, although they aren't the same person, they're cut from the same cloth, they are equal in their authority in all of that. They are in the Godhead individually 
and yet they are one. They're the same in, sen in the sense of from the same nature and character. The word white here indicates bright or blazing or brilliant. It symbolizes the eternal glory of wisdom and authority of Jesus. John goes on to, to speak about his eyes here, and he says his eyes were like a flame of fire. Notice that they were like a flame of fire, indicating purity, intensity, and the penetrating uh, gaze of Jesus Christ. His eyes investigating the depths of a person's soul. Could you imagine John locking eyes with Jesus in that moment and just seeing his piercing eyes looking right into his soul? You know, the Bible says that the eye is the lamp of the body. It's a window to the soul. No wonder people don't want to look people in the eye in this day and age because we understand this. When we do something wrong, when your child does something wrong or whatever, they don't want to look you in the eye. People don't want to look people in the eye because they understand the locking of the gaze. There's something weird about that. And if I have something against you or something, something you know, that I've done against you, then, then looking you in the eyes, there's some sort of accountability there. How do I know this? Because I have a dog. <laughs> My dog, Bella, when I come home and she's done something wrong, she will not look us in the eye. She'll just be like this. We automatically know she's done something because she won't look us in the eye. Otherwise, she's like, hey, how's it going? But, she, but when we come home and she's done something, she's either eaten something, went potty in the house or whatever the case might be, she's just like this and she doesn't want anything to do with us. She's just like, you know, it's crazy. Zoe is house-sitting for somebody right now and we went over to drop some stuff off to her and there's a dog there. And that dog literally, when we came in the house, literally just faced the wall and would not look at us. <laughs> like, they say dog knows people. I'm just like, whoa. I didn't do anything to the dog. But, but when you look into somebody's eyes, there's something, there's an accountability there. That's why it's important for us to get together in the flesh. Not in the flesh, but, you know, in body, right? Because we have to lock eyeballs with each other. And there's a natural accountability with that. Listen, the gaze of Jesus the gaze of Jesus here in his glorified state is a penetrating gaze. It's one that can look right into your life and know everything that's going on. And he knows. He knows everything. He knows all that's going on in our lives. And, you know, here's the amazing thing about it, man, is he's, he is simply just wanting to draw us to himself. You know, he doesn't want to take you behind the woodshed and whip you. That's not what he's like. He wants to love on you. He wants to be in right relationship with you. He wants you to deal with these things that are so detrimental to your life that you don't understand them. What he wants you to do is lock eyeballs with him so that, so that you know and he knows that he knows. And that's so that you can get right with him. That's what he wants. Don't, don't avoid eye contact with Jesus. Don't avoid his word. Don't avoid other people. You keep yourself accountable to people. Listen, there's so many people in the church that don't want anything to do with people in the church and, and, and they, they go to church and all that and that's about it is because they don't want accountability. They don't want to, they don't, there, there is, and, maybe, and it can also be that they've been hurt by people in the church too. I will say that. People in the church aren't necessarily, they're, they're people. People hurt people, right? Hurting people hurt people, right? So we know that but it's still something that's necessary. God created us to be eyeball to eyeball, and he wants us to be eyeball to eyeball with him. 
because he, he can look into our lives and he can speak right into our lives. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26, nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. You know that you'll give an account one day. For the unbeliever, they're going to give an account for their sin. For the believer, you're going to give an account for your works. What you did with the time that you had and how you represented Jesus, that's what you're going to give an account for as a believer. As an unbeliever, you're going to give an account for all of your sin. Regardless, Jesus wants you to, he wants to use you now and he wants you to get right with him now. So look into his eyes and, and get right with him in whatever way you need to. John goes on here and he speaks about the feet of Jesus being burnished bronze, fired in a furnace. And uh, notice the color uh, bronze here, which is a color of judgment in the Bible, that being refined in the furnace, obviously speaking of judgment and the Lord, you know, being that refiner's fire in our lives, but also being the fire that consumes the unbeliever. He is that. He is the judge of the world. He is the, the judge of the living and the dead. And John makes it clear here. Not, it was the, by the brazen altar in the temple that the burnt offering was made for sin, that color bronze being represented. It's also interesting that it's at the feet of the judge in this culture where the, the, the verdict would come down in a case, right? So they would take people to the, to, the, to the judgment seat, which would be generally at a gate somewhere in a city, and then you would, the judge would sit on this elevated seat, and the people that were being tried would be brought to his feet. And the judge would then hear the case, and then he would, he would um, rain down the verdict on the person that was at his feet. That's the picture here. It's the picture of what the Lord will be brought to the feet of Jesus one day. But isn't it interesting also that the Christian is to live at the feet of Jesus? We're to, we're to come there willingly. We're to come, it's, it's the idea of coming to the altar, just coming to the feet of Jesus willingly. We don't need to be brought in like a convict. We just live at the feet of Jesus. That's where we're supposed to be. Here Jesus being presented as, as the judge of the world. Then it, John goes on to describe his voice again. It was like the roar of many waters. You ever been by just a raging river or something like that and just the volume of the noise from that water just crashing against the rocks and all of that? It's pretty impressive. You ever been to Niagara Falls? Here you have thousands of gallons of water per second falling a thousand feet down at the, these rocks on the bottom just crashing down and you're, I don't know how far you are away from it. The railing is quite a ways off. You know, you're totally across the river from the falls and it is loud. It's amazing mist in the air because of the amount of volume of water. It's, it's it, Jesus' voice is like that. Just amazing. It's roaring. But it's, it, it's, it's meant to get our attention, but here's, there's something about Jesus' voice that is so comforting, and it's so loving, and it's so kind. Here John speaking about Jesus' right hand here, and in it he saw seven stars. From verse 20, we know the stars are seven angels of the church, so he interprets that for us. We don't have to figure it out. Verse 20 tells us what the Stars represent, they represent angels in the church. Now the question is, what are angels? Is he speaking about angelic beings? The word angel itself in the Greek literally means messenger. It can be used for people or angelic beings. And so here, here is where we're left to, 
to, to interpret what, what it is that John was seeing here. Jesus uses the word, you know, the same Greek word used here in Luke chapter 9, verse 52, to speak of human beings. He said, he, he sent messengers, literally, that's the, the word angel in the Greek, ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. Jesus sending his disciples ahead to prepare for the, up, for the, um, for the, the Last Supper, right? So he's sending them there to prepare. It's, it's speaking of a messenger. It's best to consider, I believe here, this, the, this not to be angelic beings because angelic beings aren't necessarily those who are head of a church. Although we see angelic beings being sort of over and protecting, we see that in Daniel chapter 12 with Israel. We see angelic beings and hosts, you know, protecting churches and such, but to be leaders of churches, he's probably speaking about the pastor of the church here, the messenger that God has sent to that church. Notice it's at the right hand of Jesus, which is a place of honor, which is why those who serve in that capacity have, have a stricter wrath because they're held in the right hand of Jesus. They're supposed to be his messenger, his representative. We don't have the license to do whatever it is that we want to do. We don't get to say what we want to say. We don't get to represent ourselves. And that goes for anybody in the church, but certainly for people who are leaders in the church, they are called by God to represent him and him alone. Not their own interests, not their own opinions, none of that, which is a problem in the American church today, folks. Many, many men representing themselves in this situation were called to represent Jesus. And that goes for, for all believers. John goes on here, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This sword is his word, which he uses to slay his enemies and heal the sick and wounded. For we, we know the word, we know the, uh, the scripture, Hebrews 4.12, it says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Listen, the word of God will do far more than you realize. It'll do far more than you realize. You speak the word of God to people and you let the chips fall where they may. You let the Lord do his work. He uses his word. Do you know we, we see... At the end, when Jesus comes, he's going, a sword will come out of his mouth, and it will be his word, and he will slay the people with his word. Satan fell like lightning from heaven by a word. God spoke the world into existence by words. It's his word is where the power comes from for you and I. We stick to his word. His word is a sword. He goes on here. John says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is speaking of the radiant glory of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys have ever tried to look into the sun before? You're just like, you know, yeah, you're not smart, but anyway. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm with you. I've done it. And you're just like, ah, you know, your buddies are like, see how long you can do it? And you're like, ah. You're so blinded by the time you're done, you know, you've probably taken years off of your sight by doing that. I don't recommend to do that. I had eye surgery one time and uh, laser surgery, and, and they had to repair they had to do some sort of stitching in my, um, my, the lining of my eyeball because it had torn somehow. And uh, the light was so bright. When he turned the thing off, he goes, hey, we're done. I, I was blind. I couldn't see for like 30 minutes. It scared me to death. You know, it was so bright, so brilliant. And that's what he said Jesus looks like. 
one day we're going to see him in all of his glory. He will be the light in, in the new Jerusalem. It will be, he will be the light. We won't need a sun or a moon or anything because he himself will be the light. I hope I don't burn my eyeballs out looking at him. Like, you know. John responds appropriately to Jesus here in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living and the dead. I died and behold, I'm living alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. John is like, wow, I am totally undone by what I've seen here, by seeing Jesus in all of his glory like that. And he literally falls to his feet like he's dead. That is the general response that we see when the spiritual realm is opened up and whether it's an angel or the Lord himself, is that's generally the position people find themselves. Is at the feet of Jesus, drop dead. Listen, one day when we are changed and transformed, when we are like him, that won't be our response. But here on earth, the way that we see Jesus, when we see him in all of his glory, that will be our response, I think. You, know, you think of the coming of the Lord, how exciting it will be. My idea is when Jesus comes, if, you know, to, to rapture us or whatever, if we catch a glimpse of him, I think we'll just fall to our face. I think we'll just fall to our face because he is that awesome. And I say awesome in the truest sense of the word, awesome. He's amazing, so glorious. And, you know, John, John knows Jesus. John walked with Jesus. John laid his head on Jesus' chest. John, John refers to himself as the disciple in whom Jesus loved. Like he had a relationship with Jesus. Like, you know, and yet look at his response here. It's amazing. He's like, man, Jesus, I thought you were my homeboy, but now I see you're my Lord, right? Right? Because sometimes we, we have the wrong view of Jesus, folks. Sometimes we have this idea that Jesus is just our buddy. You know, he's our homeboy and all of that. And he loves us and he's our friend and all of that stuff. But don't you ever forget he's your Lord. And he deserves reverence and respect. He deserves us falling down on our face before him because he's that glorious. Listen, the church at large has lost a healthy fear of God. They've, we've lost a healthy fear of God. We come in, and I'm not, listen, I had coffee this morning, so don't take offense, but we come into worship with our coffee. We're just kind of like, hey, Lord, I'm here. You're so lucky to have me, you know, drinking my coffee and <laughs> just singing my song, Lord, I hope you like my voice today. And, you know, you're just dancing around saying you like my moves, Lord, and all this kind of stuff, and it's all about us. That's because we have lost the healthy respect of God, the healthy fear of the Lord. Because when we come into this place, you know, and, and there should be a reverence in our heart. And I'm not, we come as we are and all of that kind of stuff. But understand, because we've shifted so far, we have to almost shift the other way to kind of explain what we're missing. Right? We come in, we should re recognize who we're coming before. You know, you don't show up at a job interview just kind of semi-prepared, do you? You show up to the Lord like that? semi-prepared, we're having communion this morning, and you're like, oh, man, I haven't even prayed this morning. I probably, probably, oh, when they, they give me that chance for the just a few seconds, I'll 
hey, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Partake of communion, no big deal. Listen, I'm not trying to bash anybody, but I'm just trying to help us to understand that he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, that he deserves our reverence. He deserves that kind of response from us. And, you know, he'll let us come in however we want, and he'll love us the way right where we are. But if you want to respond correctly to him, you come in here with the right, right fear in your heart of the Lord. You come in here prepared and ready to give your worship to him because it's about him. It's not about us. It's not about what we get out of it. It's about him. It's about what we can give him. And, and God, is, God is a debtor to no man. And, and when we give him everything that we got, he then floods us with himself because he can't resist that. He loves us so much. Just remember who he is. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. You hear John falling at his feet. This is like Isaiah, Isaiah's response to the Lord in Isaiah 6, 5, where he says, Woe to me, for I'm lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Daniel, in, it, when he, in his prayer, when he started that 21 days of prayer in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has this vision of the Lord that left him face down and trembling here in Daniel chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. He said, so I, so I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. These are people who understand who Jesus is. And they have caught a glimpse of his glory. And, and you know, we, we can see him too in that way. We come in, Lord, show me your glory. Show me who you are, Lord. Help me to change today. Help me to catch a glimpse, Lord, so it transforms my life. He calls you to live by faith. But you know what? He's always revealing himself to us, isn't he? He's always revealing himself to us. You know, I love what <laughs> Charles Spurgeon said regarding this. He said, we are never so much alive as, we, as when we are dead at his feet. Isn't that so true? We're never so much alive as we are when we're dead at his feet. Just finding ourselves laid out before the Lord. Notice what Jesus does then to John, who's just totally collapsed before him, melted before the Lord. And it says that the Lord puts his right hand on John. It's a means of comfort, and he says to him, fear not. Jesus has said that to him multiple times. On his, in his earthly ministry. Remember when he was walking across the sea in the middle of the night and they were freaking out like, whoa, whoa, what is that? Don't worry, guys, it's just me. Fear not, you know, no big deal. It's like when they're in the middle of the storm and Jesus, they wake Jesus up and they're like, hey, and he's like, fear not, man, what's wrong with you guys? It's like, Jesus, come on, man. We're human beings. We need your help here, you know. He's telling John here, fear not. Literally, stop being afraid. That's what it means. Like, dude, stop being afraid. You know me. We have a relationship. But, but also, you understand who I am. So that's good. But fear not, John. And the Lord comforting him. And then he reassures John by saying, listen, I am. That is, that is that word, those two words, I am, that's the name of God. This is Yahweh. This is Jehovah God. This is, he is the I am. And then Jesus goes on to say, I, I am the first and the last. Jesus is the beginning and the end. He's, he, he was 
before the beginning, and he will exist far beyond the end, folks. He is the first and the last. Isaiah 4, 6, 44, 6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. He also declares himself as the living one. Again, this is a title for God. He's referred to as the living one in the Old Testament over and over and over again. He's the living God. Jesus Christ is the living God. He's the living one. He also, he died, rose again from the dead, and he now holds the keys of death and Hades in his hands. This is why the grave has no grip on us, folks, because Jesus Christ came, he paid the penalty for our sin, releasing the wrath of God, releasing the, the, the debt that we owe, which is eternal death forever and ever and ever. What did God say to Adam and Eve? If you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. He didn't mean just physically. He meant spiritually forever. That's what it means to die in the Bible, literally, the first time it's ever used. It's meant to talk about a separation from God for eternity. You shall surely die. So Jesus comes and he dies the death for us. He rises again from the dead, takes the keys of, of death and Hades, and he says, anybody who believes in me will pass right through the grave, right into my presence. Amen. What an awesome pro promise we have from the Lord. He holds the key to death and, death and Hades. We don't have to worry about death. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ passed through the grave, and so will you if you put your hope in him. That's all you have to do is give him your life. Turn your life, you know, give him everything that he is. He has to be your Lord, though. You can't just receive the benefits. There is no friends with benefits with Jesus, and I know that's awkward, but that's the truth. There are people who, who treat him like that. You don't get to go to heaven if he's not your Lord, period. If he's your Lord, that means you consider what he says. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you're my disciple, Right? There is a responsibility for a true believer to try and walk that path. We're not saved by what we do, but, but the evidence of our salvation is shown in the way that we live our lives, folks. If you're doing whatever you wanted, you could care less about what the Bible says or about Jesus says. I'm going to tell you right now, I would not feel comfortable with that kind of salvation if I were you. And I would give my heart to Jesus. Because you can't know that you know that you know if you're not going to heaven. You can't know that if you're not living for the Lord. But if you are living for the Lord and you're failing and you're trying and you're dusting yourself up and you get yourself back up and you're saying, Lord, I, want, I need your grace. Will you forgive me? And you're living at the feet of Jesus, guess what? You will see him face to face one day. You will see him. It's, it's all about relationship with the Lord. Is he your Lord or not? You know, I, I don't go to my dad and I don't run away from my dad because I did something wrong. I want to go to my dad and say, Dad, will you forgive me? Will you help me? I need your help. That's what we're supposed to do with the Lord. He, he is over all things, including death and Hades, man. What a great and glorious thing. Now John goes on to the very last moments here. We find him with the outline of what is to be written here. Verse 19, write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the, golden, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here we find John being instructed by Jesus. This isn't my interpretation. 
of how the book of Revelation is to be laid out. This is Jesus' words to John to write down for you and I. And here's what he says. John, write down, uh, write therefore the things that you have seen. What is he talking about? The things that he's seen. He's talking about chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. The things that he's seen. What has he seen? He's seen the glorified Christ. He's seen, he's seen Jesus in all of his glory in this moment. That's the things that he's seen. Then he says, the second thing, here's the second part of the outline of the book of Revelation. Then write those that are. He's talking present tense here. He's talking about the things that are during the life of John, the things that are going on right then and there. He's speaking about, and we see that those, the things that are are chapters 2 and 3. The church, he's talking about the seven churches that he's writing to. That's the things that are, right? So we have chapter 1, the things that he's seen, past tense. Then we have chapters 2 and 3, the things that are, present tense. Then he goes on to say, and those that are to take place after this. After what? After the things that he's seen and the things that are. Here's the interesting thing about this. Flip over with me to Revelation chapter 4. Notice what Jesus says here. I'm not making this outline. Jesus made this outline. After this, I looked, verse 1 of chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place what? After this. Jesus, then from chapter 4 through the end of the book, is the final part of what John is to write down. But this is speaking, I believe, of the tribulation period and what will occur all the way through the millennial reign of Christ to the, to the um, production of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And then we close the book. Come, Lord Jesus. So here we have the outline to the book of Revelation. I don't think we have to figure that out. It's figured out for us. Jesus told John exactly what to write. He told him exactly how to lay out the book. And so that's exactly how we're going to lay the book out. And that's how we're going to approach the book because that's what Jesus said. Amen? One thing is for sure here, folks. And this is what I've learned. And this is probably what you've learned too is that you don't ever want to rely on your memory when it comes to an epic revelation given by God, do you? Because our memories will fail us. And also, because listen, oftentimes what God is doing in our lives is not just for us. It's for other people. You know, one day you're going to die. One day you're going to go, you're going to be passed away. You want to leave something for those that are behind, you know, those who, who, who love you. Who, maybe it's your kids or maybe it's your family or whoever it might be. You want to leave them a, a, a marked up Bible, you want to leave them some, some journals from the Lord that the Lord has spoken into your life that they can sit there and they can be comforted and they can, they can know that they know that they know that where you are. You want to leave some nuggets that God has given you so that, you know, down the road when if it's your kids and you want them to learn some of the things that, that you've learned that, um, you know, they have some source. The Lord will take care of them, of course, but why not, why not teach them what you know you're supposed to anyway? Write it down, man. Write these things down. And specifically, write down, as we go through the book of Revelation, write down the nuggets because at the end of it, you're going to have an opportunity to share what the Lord has done in your life through this book. Write it down. 
God, um, Jesus instructed John to write it down, and he's instructing us to write it down too, amen? Father, thank you for your word this morning, and Lord, what a great, great kickoff of the book of Revelation, chapter one. Wow, we pray, Father, that as we continue on, that you continue to transform our lives. Show us, Lord, who you are. Show us the glorified state of Jesus Christ. Help us to recognize him and all his glory. Lord, may that not produce a fear in us, Lord, but may it produce a faith in us to understand that we have a God that is in control. We have nothing to fear because everything is in his hand and he's at work to to accomplish all that he wants to, Lord. So all that you want to, and I just pray, Father, as we close this service now, that you have your way in us. Lord, you know what we need to do to respond to what you've said this morning. Maybe we're at a lonely place. Maybe we're desolate. Maybe we're hurting. Lord, you want to minister to us through your word. You want to minister to us through your people. We pray, Lord, that you would just move in these last moments, and Lord, help us to just respond appropriately. We thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord, and we just ask you to, by the power of your spirit now, fill us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.